Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. We're back in Revelation tonight. You can turn in your Bibles to chapter 2. As you're turning there and our youth are making their way out, just a couple of reminders for the week. Tomorrow morning, ladies, you have Bible study here at 9.30. Don't miss it. We also have the American Red Crosses back here tomorrow for a blood drive that'll be happening right here in the sanctuary. So I do need your help moving chairs tonight, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I think that all the spots are full, but they do a pretty good job of walking. So if you've not signed up for that and you would like to give, typically you can stop in and they'll make that happen. It is a tremendous need still in our community. And so we'd encourage you to be a part of that. And then this weekend on Saturday, we've got men's study at 8 a.m. That'll be here in the sanctuary. And then ladies, you are at 10, 10 a.m. And here at the back, in the back. Saturday. So this Saturday morning, 8 a.m. here for the men, 10 a.m. for the ladies. If you got kiddos, you can do the swap. So you can pass, right? So exciting things in the days ahead here for us. All right. Well, here we are again for our study in Revelation. As I mentioned, we've made it as far as chapter two. <laughs> Woohoo! And, uh, In chapter 1, according to verse 19, uh, John had written the things that he had seen. And so chapter 1, specifically that which he had already seen, this incredible interaction that he was having on the Isle of Patmos, as here he hears a voice behind him, a voice that's as the sound of a trumpet, but a voice that has a familiarity to it, and he turns and sees the glorified, risen Lord Jesus. And so he's, he's recording those things in chapter one. And, and then as we come into chapter two and three, John will write the things which are. So the things which he had seen, the things which are presently, as he records then the letters to the seven churches, which we will begin to consider here tonight. And then as we get beyond this into chapter four, John will write of the things which will happen after this. And so the things he's seen, the things which are presently, and then the things which are to come. And so here in chapters two and three, we read of the church. We're reading here of the church, his church The bride of Christ, the very thing that we are a part of, Christian, the thing that Jesus himself died for, that he has built. It's it's this very thing, this church that we've considered extensively as of late. It's the very thing that Jesus prays for. And he prays that we, the church, would be unified as he and the Father are unified. This is what we're reading about in these, in these chapters. And, and in the first three chapters of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times. 19 times in these first three chapters. Yet from chapter 4 through chapter 20, 
the chapters that will cover the time of the tribulation, the time of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, no mention of the church. Where is she? Where does she go? I believe she is and we are raptured, caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air, spared from the hour of trial that is to come upon the earth, spared from his wrath. We will be with him in heaven and then we'll return with him at his glorious second coming when all the world will see. This, of course, is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. A rapture of the church that happens before the time of tribulation. And then a pre-millennial second coming of Christ. Jesus returning before a literal millennial reign. I understand, isn't, and I've mentioned this now over the last two studies, that this, of course, is not the view held by all who are part of the church. And we can respect those different views, albeit this is what we teach at Calvary. This is what I believe. There are certainly other views that we can respect and, and are acceptable within the church. So long as we agree that Jesus is coming back. And he say amen. And he's coming back. And that we'll be with him forever. And so here, uh, in these two chapters, Jesus has words for his church. There's seven specific churches that will receive messages. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each of these churches have or are representative of something. Ephesus is often considered a preoccupied church or a loveless church. Smyrna, a persecuted church. Pergamos, a, a lax church or a compromising church. Thyatira, neglectful or corrupt. Sardis, a powerless church, a dead church. Philadelphia, a persevering church, a faithful church. And Laodicea, a lukewarm church. Now, each of these churches were a literal church. They existed during this time. They were in a literal place throughout Asia Minor. Actual places, there's historical evidence of these churches. You can visit these places today. However, some of these churches were not necessarily the most prominent of churches. Some could certainly ask why these churches, and many have. Much speculation has been made as to why these particular churches here are mentioned. And, and, and what it is then that we can learn from them. Each church being a literal church was dealing with different issues. And the letters written to them, the words of Jesus recorded were certainly for those churches. The words that Jesus has to share that John writes on these pages were in fact letters that were given to these specific churches to deal with the things that were going on there. They had, they had bearing on things happening within these fellowships but the words are not for these churches alone, but for all churches throughout history, including today. We know that all of scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable still today. And, and, and so these words are not for these churches alone, but they're for all churches throughout history. In each letter, not only will this specific destination be addressed, but then we'll see at the end of each letter, the exhortation to he who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Why seven of them? Well, certainly some of you who are familiar with your numbers in Scripture would, would say, well, seven certainly is a common number. It is a biblical number indeed, a number of completion. It also happens to be the same number of churches that Paul wrote to, at least those that are recorded in the New Testament canon of Scripture. And it's believed by many that these specific churches, and, and, and why these amongst the many, because there were other churches in the area, as I've alluded to already, there were even some in specific cities that were more prominent than others, that these churches also represent specific periods throughout church history. Now, some certainly debate this, and indeed you can. Some, some quite vehemently have said, no, you cannot compare these seven churches to church history. But I would say to take such a stance that you simply cannot do that isn't valid. In fact, as we will, as we make our way through these letters, we'll consider, uh, albeit it won't be the, the primary focus of our time with each of these churches, but we'll look at the various age of the church history that they represent. And I think you'll see that you can quite easily look at the history of the church and see that church history can be broken up into seven segments. Now, I don't believe that those segments, like some do, I don't believe that they start at one point and end at one point. I think there is certainly some overlap. But we can see a, a, a progression, if you will. I'm reluctant to even use that word. In some cases, it's a regression, you could say. But we see the history on display through these seven churches. And We'll consider this along the way, and, 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 and if you change the order of these churches from how they're presented in Scripture, it wouldn't work. And so it is one of those things that we look at and we say, ha, this is a little ironic. Maybe it's of the Holy Spirit that they were selected, placed where they were. And, and what other order? Based on the geographic location of these particular churches, they are, they are in order along a particular path and road. They make sort of an arch throughout Asia Minor. And so it's also believed that they were addressed in this way so that as these letters were kind of delivered, um, they would be on a particular path and that they would then begin to reach other churches in the area as indeed they did and, and have as evidenced by us having these letters before us. Um, and this reinforces then the relevance for all churches. Now, each letter we will see follows a very similar pattern. Um, and what we'll see in this is that a destination is given, the specific location of the, of the church. A description of the Lord Jesus is given. And, and in each letter, the, the, the description is slightly different uh, in somewhat... Uh, accordance with the nature of the letter. Meaning if the letter is more condemning in nature, then the description of Jesus will be that of a judge. Um, and it's rooted then in the description that John uh, gave at the beginning. And, and, and you'll see that here shortly. Now a, com a commendation, the churches are commended uh, in most of the letters well, with the exception of Laodicea. Laodicea is the one church that's not commended for their behavior, their actions. And it should be noted, and we'll consider this again, that Laodicea would be one of those churches that fits within our present church age. Um, and then, of course, we see then a condemnation in most of the letters, with the exception of Philadelphia and Smyrna. 
Smyrna being a church that was persecuted, Philadelphia being a church that was faithful, faithful in, in evangelism and sharing the gospel. And then all of them receive an exhortation and then a promise. The exhortation that those who can hear, hear. And the fact of the matter is not all who hear really hear, right? This isn't just simply, well, just listen, you know, just, just hear this word, but, but hear it, receive it. And that's the challenge for us still today as we dive into these letters. Are we really willing to hear the Spirit has for us? And the first of which here, the first letter is a very important letter. It's an important letter. It's an important church. And it's in an important city. Though I mentioned of some of these churches that not all of them were of great prominence. The church in Ephesus would certainly be an exception to that. And so we read here then in chapter 2 in verse 1 at the beginning of the first half of verse 1. John writes to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. And so we considered this last time that the letters are to the angels. The angels of the churches. And in this case to the church of Ephesus. Now the word angel is the Greek word angelos. Which can be translated angel and often is in scripture. But it can also be translated messenger. And it seems likely in this particular context that it would be the latter. Now, some people do maintain that there is a specific angel for each church and that this is who the, the letter is given to. I would align more with the, uh, the former there, that these are letters that are going to be given to specific messengers in the church, human people, human leaders, uh, likely a pastor or someone who bears responsibility for the churches. And so John here writing these letters being given to the messenger for a particular church. And here again, it's written to the church in Ephesus. We know this. Uh, we're familiar with this name, not only just because we become familiar with this city through our study of the Bible, specifically in the book of Acts, but of course also the letter to the Ephesians uh, by the Apostle Paul. And what a history this particular city has, this particular church had. Now, Ephesus at this particular time, depending on who you read, had anywhere from 200,000 to 300,000 people living within the, the city limits. So this was no small city. It was an established city. It served as the capital of the province of Asia. Uh, it was of great prominence um, in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Diana. Diana of the Ephesians. The, the, the people of Ephesus fancied themselves to be the, the keepers of the temple, the protectors of the temple of Diana. And this temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, its, its specifications, its size, its, its tremendous columns, in some cases gold-plated columns, uh, drew people from around the world. It was truly a tremendous structure, but it was also then, because of this, the site of uh, very extensive uh, and um, sinful pagan worship. Now, Ephesus was also a commercial, retail, and banking center. It was kind of a, a hub, a financial hub for the area. It was a beautiful place. As you came into the, into the harbor, as, as Paul would have arrived, uh, he would have seen marble uh, columns stretching down for the, the, the main street as you arrived. And no doubt a, a bustling commerce and, 
It was highly developed. It, it had theaters, amphitheaters. It drew crowds from all over. It had an arts and an entertainment district, if you will. And at times it's believed that Ephesus would draw upwards of 2 million people into the city at, at any given time. And so it served as a common place, but a place then where you could reach people from all over Asia Minor. In other words, it was a city of great influence, but a city with great potential. And, and certainly this potential was, was proven through Paul's missionary time there and the events that followed. Paul, at the close of his second missionary journey, made a stop in Ephesus. We'll be spending a little bit of time tonight in uh, Acts where we gain some background on Ephesus. In Acts, specifically in chapter 18, verses 18 through 21, we read, So Paul still remained a good while. This was in, uh, um, at the end of his second missionary journey. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. In verse 19, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So here he comes back on the end of his second missionary journey and, and he brings Priscilla and Aquila and he, he leaves them there in Ephesus, but um, not before he enters the synagogue and reasons with the Jews there. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, verse 20, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So he had a brief, uh, brief point in time where he arrived there in Ephesus. They wanted him to stay. So immediate was his impact. Paul, even after a short period of time, was welcomed there in Ephesus. This was a people that was hungry for the gospel and uh, that which, which Paul had to share. But Paul saw fit to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to make it for the, the feast days. But he comes back. And oh, does he come back. Ephesus serves as a place where Paul stays really longer than any other place on his missionary journeys. And he comes back, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 19. And it's here that a great work was accomplished while Paul was there. And this work served as the foundation for the commendations that are given by Jesus to this church. Again, in Acts chapter 19, it says, And it happened, this is the beginning of the chapter, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, 
reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So this, this very same place that he had, had before come for a short period of time and, and they had asked him to stay. Now he returns. He, he meets uh, some people on the way, disciples. And, and, and he was about inquiring very, uh, very early. And he taught the Ephesians to do the same thing, to check, to say, do you know Jesus? I mean, this is the way that many of them often essentially greeted one another. They did a check at the very beginning before they even had a relationship with somebody. Do you, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Oftentimes we hear that, that they would say, he is risen. And if in reply you heard he is risen indeed, you knew I've got a brother or sister in Christ. And so he meets these, these guys and he asks them about their faith and their walk with the Lord. And, and what he uncovers here is that, that they had been uh, baptized by John's baptism. That is, there was, and we won't get into all this tonight. It's a whole other study in and of itself. But what he recognizes here is that uh, there is more. And this is often the case for believers even still today regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to say, look, you believed on Jesus through what they had heard through the baptism of John. But the fact of the matter is the spirit that's with you, drawing you under repentance, that seals you and indwells you as the believer, comes upon you as well to empower you and equip you as a believer. And so there's elements of understanding that we gain there through this interaction. And so Paul then from there, he, he enters into the synagogue and he says he spoke boldly for three months. And so now he's spending time reasoning amongst them. He's going back day after day for three months. And it says that, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And verse 10, and this continued for two years. Two years now that Paul spends with these people. This very, church, this very first church that Jesus sees fit to send a letter to here in the book of Revelation some 30 years later. So Paul spent two years with them. And note this, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Now think about this particular city and the things that I've just mentioned. It's prominence, it's draw, the number of people that would come into it and leave and go elsewhere. Because of the work that God did through Paul in this particular area, the gospel was going forth. And it wasn't just that people heard. Now granted, not all of them believed as we see there and as Luke wrote in the earlier part of this chapter. Not all believed, but all heard and many believed. And because they believed, the culture there was changed. It was changed. This great work was accomplished and a church was birthed and established there. And once again, these are the things that lead then to the, the, the commendation that comes from Jesus in verses 2 and 3. But, but first here, the second half of verse 1 in Revelation chapter 2. Here it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So now here we have the description of the Lord Jesus. And these are his words here. So Paul's writing it down and he's saying, look, to the, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church, from, from Jesus, from he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. says, these are his words. And here, now in this description, which is similar to what we see there in chapter 1, we see here that, that Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand. Now, what did chapter 1 tell us of what those stars were? What did it say the seven stars were? 
They were the angels, right? So these are the messengers. If you translate it as, as the pastors or the leaders of the churches, he's saying that they're in his hand, that he's in control. Now, on one hand, this can be a great comfort. It would be a great comfort to me and is still today that, that God holds me in his hand. And, and that's true for every believer. And it's comforting too when we see passages that say no one can pluck you from his hand. That you're in his control. But this should also cause them to understand he's in control. Particularly for a pastor to answer the question, whose church is it? It's so easy for a pastor to say, my church. And sometimes this is simply semantics. It's not necessarily an issue of the heart, but boy, it can become one really quickly. It's not my church. It's not your church. Though we love to say, I love my church. It's his church. It's his. Moreover, it says that Jesus is walking in the midst of his church, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and he still is today. Jesus said, I will build my church. She is his bride. He has prepared a place for his church. He will come for her. And between now and then, he will not hesitate to snuff those out who fail to follow him. For the churches that are no longer a light to the world. We'll deal with that a little later on as we see the the dead church. Now verses 2 and 3 here we see that the church in Ephesus is commended. And these are the things that she is recognized for. He writes, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Works, labor, patience, A stand against evil, discernment, perseverance, their works. No doubt they had an understanding of the importance of works. Roughly 30 years earlier, as we've already started to set the context for, Paul had written to this group of believers that he had come to know, this church that he had been a part of establishing. He writes to them in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes to them, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was here to this church that that Paul so poetically, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pens these words and lets them know, guys, you are God's workmanship, his, his work of art. And you've been created to give him glory. You've been created for good works, prepared before him. That is that, that God, before he even formed you in your mother's womb, he knew you. You're created in his image with purpose, with value. Created to work for him, to bring him glory. This was rooted in, in, in the very establishment of this church in Ephesus. They knew we're to be working for God. We're to be serving him. And this was a good thing. This is not a bad thing. Paul makes clear here that your works come from a relationship. They're not the thing that creates the relationship. You work because of what he has done. 
That's the pattern throughout scripture, even in the Old Testament. As much as people look at the Old Testament and say, well, the Old Testament is about the law. Nobody could keep the law. And so, praise God, we've got the New Testament and a new covenant in Jesus. There's elements of that that are true. But even, even when God gave the law there in Exodus 19, what did God say? He said, you have seen what I have done for you. So then, will you follow me? It's always rooted in what he does first. And so Paul's not off basis. He says this. He says, look, this is what God has done. And so we serve him. We give him our lives. This was rooted in this church. And this is important for us to understand as we consider then the letter that's being written to them here in Revelation. Because what we see here that Jesus himself highlights the commendation that they receive here is really emphasizing all that they had done. All that they had worked for. The many, many things that, that they could stand on and say, look what we've done. And Paul loved this church. You could argue that this was Paul's favorite church. A great work, as I've mentioned, was accomplished there. The word of God took root. Continuing here in, in Acts chapter 19, again, we see that in verse 10, the, the word spread all throughout Asia. And, and then things continued on as this was happening miracles started to happen. It says here, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. God was doing miraculous work in this city through Paul. This city that was known for its pagan worship, this place where worldly people were coming from all over, God was moving in powerful ways and they were hungry for it. So that if you jump ahead, under verse 18 through 20, it says, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This culture was being turned upside down. Pagan worship what was being dealt with and dispelled. People who were practicing magic, sorcery. They saw what God was doing through Paul. And they said, forget this. We don't want any part of this. And they came and they brought their, their books and they, they burned them. I mean, they were, they were letting go of the old life. So much so that when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he goes into Macedonia and he, and uh, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana. Remember, Diana is the one who they worship there in Ephesus. And so this guy's making little Diana trinkets. It's, it's, his, it's his livelihood to fashion little statues of Diana. You can go into a shop and you can buy a small one or maybe a big one. And you can fill your home with different Dianas. And Demetrius here, he's thinking, man, business is down. I'm not, I'm not selling as many Dianas as I used to. And so he makes these silver shrines of Diana, and, and it brought no small profit to the craftsmen. That's an eloquent way of saying, this guy was getting rich off this stuff. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. 
How dare he? But look at this. He says, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people throughout Asia. He says almost all of Asia. So it wasn't a bold claim that was made there that the word had gone out. So not only is this trade of ours, verse 27, in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Wrong. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion. The point being here that so great was the impact of the gospel in this area that, that it stirred these people up who were making their living off of the pagan worship to say, We got to stop this. And so a riot happens in town and it, and it drives Paul out of there. He's like, We, we got to go. And guys, what a wonderful pattern it is here. And you've heard me say this before, but you'll hear me say it again. Did Paul march into Ephesus and put up signs on every corner that said, vote for Paul? Did Paul go down to Ephesus City Hall and bring a petition and say, we need this law and this law and this law? Did Paul go around to the bars? Did he go to the little idol shops and say, and and with signs out front and a group of people start picketing and saying, close this shop down. No, he didn't do those things. What did he do? He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. Is that me saying, oh, we don't want any of those things. Let these poor silversmiths continue to operate their stores. Let the places of, of, of disrepute continue to function. No, but it is us recognizing what truly transforms hearts and minds. What truly will bring change to a culture? You want the people in our own city who are up to no good to, to, to go, wait a second. The things I used to do that I made my living off of, I can't do it anymore. Do you want that? I want that. How about that comes through a revival? Through people saying, man, I don't want this anymore. From people bringing whatever it is of their past and saying, burn it. I'm done with it. These are the things that were happening in Ephesus. Ephesus was experiencing revival. The whole culture was changing. So that here what's recognized is they became a people who were diligent. Man, we're going to protect our city. We're going to stand for our city. We're not going to let our culture be infiltrated by this evil any longer. We're going to stand. We're going to, we're going to check people. We're going to make sure that, that you're not bringing this into my house. All these things that can at least at first seem good. Some of these things that we see happening in our own culture today, right? We got to stand for this. We got to test this, right? We've got to make sure that this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen. And so they, they became very diligent in these things. They said, you cannot bear those who are evil, And so we know that the Ephesian church pursued doctrinal purity. They wanted things to be right. They wanted things to be done the the right way. And Paul warned them as he comes back to them again and he's making his journey back through in Acts chapter 20. And Paul knows at this point he's he's heading for Jerusalem. He he thinks it will likely be the end of him. He he ends up living for a good while longer than what he expects. But for the Ephesians, he knows this is the last time I'm going to see them. He stops to see them. It's a a very uh, sentimental moment. And in Acts chapter 20 and verses 29 through 31, Paul says, For I know this. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now he's speaking to the elders in Ephesus at this particular time and he's telling them, watch, be faithful, be vigilant. And so they did that. We know from the commendation that's given from Jesus that the Ephesians took Paul's warning seriously. They labored, they expended themselves in trying people. And in this letter here, this serves to capture, and we'll we'll talk more about these things maybe as we get through the the seven churches, we'll kind of revisit it. But, But this particular period then, if we align it historically, would align with the apostolic period right up until the end and and maybe a little ways into the post apostolic church. And so the time when the apostles were still alive and establishing the church to when many of them were were dying. And so this really is going to take us up through the year uh, 100 AD. And, and they tested people then, others who came, others, to, others who came and, and said that they were apostles. They'd say, well, they're going to figure that out. We're not just going to let you say you're somebody that you're not. And so the church today, like the Ephesian church then, certainly must vigorously test those who claim to be messengers from God. The church must stand for truth. The church must be on guard against deception. But here's the deal. For everything that Ephesus was doing well, for all the ways in which they were heeding the warnings of Paul, for years upon years upon years, such devotion and discipline means little to nothing when there's something specific lacking in your life. And verse 4 gives us insight into what was going on in this church. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So here then comes the condemnation against them. They had left their first love. Paul says, nevertheless, or you could translate it, despite all of this, despite all of these good things that you're doing, you've left your first love. Now, see, there is a distinction that must be understood here between leaving and losing. That's important. Something can be lost by accident. Many of you are familiar with this. It is your way. <laughs> Little chuckles took a while there. You know who we're talking about. I don't know, but you know. But leaving, leaving is a deliberate act, though it may not happen suddenly. Now, though they had left their first love, everything probably continued to look great on the outside. If you would have attended a service of the church at Ephesus, perhaps you might have thought, this is, man, things are going well. These people are on their game. They're doing so much. They really guard the truth. They stand for truth. They're they're all about business, keeping things running properly, making sure no heresy gets in here. And at the same time, you might even have some sort of uneasy feeling. You might find yourself going, I don't know exactly what it is. But it wasn't hard here for Jesus to see the problem. Even though everything looked wonderful on the outside, we're the church in Ephesus. Jesus got to the heart of the matter. The Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. But sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make, and that alone, will make a congregation cold, will make them suspicious, will make them intolerant of diversity. 
Charles Spurgeon said, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse. A powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus depart. I'm familiar with some of these churches. Friends, what, what's happening here, what had happened is that they had lost their devotion to Christ. They had left their love for him. In the infamous chapter in 1 Corinthians, a love chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not what? Love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I would submit to you that so much of the so-called church today has become a clanging cymbal. The professing church so bent on, on defending our culture, protecting our culture, from evils that are seen. Attempts at maintaining what in their view is, is just right doctrinal purity. But doing so without love. Is causing people to be a clanging symbol. What does that mean? I'm not going to climb in the booth and clang a symbol around. But if we know. If the church knows that we have access to. We know the, the, the word that brings. The word that is truth that brings life. And we seek then in obedience to the mission that we've been given by God to share that truth with the lost. And, and it's as if I looked to you and I said, guys, do you know that I have to share with you the most incredible truth that you will ever hear in your life? That it will change your life. It's the difference between death and life. Do you want to hear that truth? And you begin to be drawn in. And I say, here I go. I'm going to start to tell you. I'm going to tell you this truth, right? And I begin to, to tell you of all the things that the gospel. And you hear nothing. All you hear is an obnoxious noise. And what do you do? That guy's a fraud. That's not truth. That just hurt. That was noise. It was obnoxious. And much of the church today is going around professing to be the church. And so much of the truth is just lost in the hypocrisy and the intolerance and the, and the, the desire for protection of, of country over kingdom. They left their first love. Think of Paul. Paul who said, listen, all I want is to know him more. Paul, who had experienced so much, yet he said, I do not pretend to have attained. I want more of him. That I would know everything I possibly can about him. And not just the good things, not just the, the, the power of his resurrection, but of his death and of his suffering. I want to know it all because I want to know him. That's devotion. Do we love him? Do we want him? Do we want more of him? Do you find yourself, be honest, saying, I want, do I want more of Jesus? J. Vernon McGee, he writes, My friend, when your home life and your church life become a burden, there is something wrong with your relationship with Christ. When you get that straightened out, other things will straighten out also. You see, these people, they, they, had been, they had been so focused on, man, we're, we're going we're gonna to bear up under it. We're going to be long-suffering. We're going to continue to test and to prove. 
But man, as I shared with somebody tonight, they weren't just growing weary in the work. They were growing weary of the work. But here's the wonderful truth that he puts before us. Because here's the thing. When we lose something, by definition, we don't know where to find it. Agreed? It's lost. But when we leave something, we know where we left it. Thus the exhortation, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. He says, remember. The psalmist, Psalm 77, the consoling memory of God's redemptive work. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I, I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. You see, he comes to this place of, of utter despair, but commits to saying, I will remember. I'll remember what you did, God. What are the early years of your faith? For each of you here, I don't know how long you've been each walking with the Lord, different, different amounts of time. You see, the thing that happens as we walk with the Lord, sadly, and we continue on oftentimes in this life, no different than uh, the Ephesians. And some think that maybe they were drawn away by some of the things of the world that continued to exist there in Ephesus. Others that they just left their devotion to Christ because they were so hung up on the things that they needed to do. Those works that were originally an outpouring of a relationship with him became the thing that they were using to build the relationship. And I think that's often what happens with believers. Believers. We can so quickly forget God's grace and move into a place of legalism and works. Because God's grace is so far beyond us, it's so difficult for us to comprehend it. And so if you're anything like me, sometimes you're reflecting on God's grace and you say, it can't possibly be. He can't possibly love me like that. And so it must be. It must be because this is how every other relationship works. It must be that I need to work to love him more. And then maybe if I do enough, then he'll love me even more. Because to me, it's an offense to think after 20 years of walking with the Lord, 20 years of pursuing the Lord, 20 years of studying, well, God, how could you not love me more today? It doesn't work that way. He says, oh, oh, you have so much to learn. That very day that you surrendered your life to me. I loved you just as much then. Knowing all the things, there's nothing you can do. Nothing that caused me to love you any more. But we forget about that. 
and we move to a place of works and legalism. We convince ourselves that we're doing the right things. But what of those first days? What of those early days, those hours even, when you came to the understanding that the creator God of the universe loves me and he died for me. And because of what he's done, I'm giving my life to him. If I said right now, and I shared this with the intern team the other day, if I, if I had the ability right here to supernaturally take every one of you back to that moment, and then I said, anybody have any praises tonight? What would you begin to say? I'm of the opinion we'd be passing out some tissues in here. And I don't mean this isn't from a place of condemnation. I'm right there with you. But when I say any praises tonight, what do we do? I got one, right? He says, remember, remember, go back to the beginning. What was it like then? We're out of time, but I want to close on this. I can't, it, every time I look at this passage, I think of this. It, it's in many of you may be familiar. It's, it's, it's from second Kings chapter six, verse six. And it's that place where Elisha is, is the man of God. He's, he's the prophet at this particular time. And uh, let me just read it. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. And so he answered, Go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So Elisha goes with him. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. And so the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And so he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. And therefore he said, pick it up yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Every time I read this passage, I, I think of Elisha there with the man who, who, who lost something that was, that was precious. Something, no doubt, that had a, a cost to it. And in panic, he says, oh no, what's going to happen? But, but here the man of God, it says, looked at him and very calmly, he simply said, where did it fall? Where is it? He says, right there. And with that, he said, he threw out a stick in a way only a prophet can and caused that thing to rise up in the water. And he said, take it. So many of us like that church in Ephesus, we've lost, we've lost that edge. We, we've lost that thing that was, that was precious, that, that had a cost to it. But God doesn't panic. He just simply says, where is it? Go back to it. Remember, remember wherefore you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. And here's, here, there needs to be, he says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So now he's speaking again to the church here, but it's an understanding for us that there needs to be confession and repentance in his church. This isn't something that's a one and done type of thing. Yes, when we're saved, we're saved. Praise God, he's done that work. But to continue in the process of sanctification, to be about a community of believers that are saying, look, I'm struggling. Here's this area in my life, man, I, I'm just kind of, I'm just going through the motions right now. It's become legalism. It's become religion and being willing to just say, look, I, I need revival in my own life and in my own heart to, to foster a practice of confession and repentance to where we would be open and transparent with one another in that way. And, and to simply challenge each other to say, look, where'd you lose it? 
Where'd you lose that edge? Where'd you lose that passion? Where was it that you were most in love with him? And then it slowly started to fade. And and remember, just like the psalmist to say, Lord, I'm going to remember and to begin to think about. And so once again, what was that like? What was that like when you first came to the Lord? Or what was it like? And, and maybe, you're, maybe now, maybe right now you're in a place where you're saying, man, I am alive. I'm loving it. God is moving. He's speaking. He's working. I'm hearing his voice. Praise God. Be an encouragement to others. He closes out this letter saying, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And here there's a couple of opinions, but ultimately it's, it's probably a man, Nicholas of Antioch, who was a part of the, uh, he, he was uh, basically a, a deacon um, established by the apostles and he led people astray. He led uh, people into lives of, of what they would say was unrestrained indulgence. And we'll see this come into play with a, another church as well. And so he was one who just sort of said, look, uh, immorality and and and." And all these things, he sort of, he exercised, he supposedly exercised liberty in a way in which he said his conscience was clean, but it wasn't. He was engaging in sinful behavior. And so this began to spread. William Barclay says that he, he said that they were, it's not that they were destroying Christianity, but that they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it, or so they claimed. And so they were leading people astray, saying, look, it's, it's Christianity, but, but you can get away with this and you can get away with this. And so these people who, again, were standing for truth, they hated it. God says, so do I. But none of this matters if you don't have devotion to me. All your work in the name of Christ or in the name of the church, what does it accomplish if you don't have a relationship with me? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Are we willing to hear that? Now, yes, as we'll consider as we make our way through these, this will serve to give us a perspective on a particular church age. This was something that was happening specifically in this church at this time. But this is also something that's for us today. And I believe it's for the church today. The church in America, who is, who is giving themselves to, to, to more of, of seeking to supposedly defend the faith and stand for truth, but doing it absence of, absent of love and a relationship to Christ. Because of that, it's driving people away. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for our time together here this evening, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives, that we are individuals, Lord, who are indwelt by the same power, Lord Jesus, that raised you from the dead. is beyond our comprehension and our understanding, but it's true, Lord. And so that's what unites us. Lord, uh, and, it, and it's, it's you in us, using us, Lord, throughout this world. Uh, what a privilege that is, Lord. And so, Father, I just pray that you continue to draw us deeper into a relationship with you and fellowship with one another. And that, Lord, as we considered sp- the specifics of, of the church in Ephesus here tonight, Lord, that, that the sweetness of fellowship that's enjoyed here would grow only deeper, Lord. Not, Lord, that, that years from now we would say, boy, we've, we've wandered and we've left our first love that our devotion to you and love for you and, and, and willingness to receive the love that you have for us and to believe it and trust it, to trust in your grace and your mercy. Oh, Lord, do that work in us, Lord, I pray. Uh, make us, Lord, for your glory, an unstoppable force in this culture in which we, we live, Lord. Bless each of these here tonight, Lord, I pray, as they follow after you. Go before them, lead them, guide them, Lord. 
And should you tarry in your return, Lord, bring us back together safely. Uh, for more, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation.